Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. Tonight I have a very special guest. I have Cheryl Jouer, uh, who happens to be the founder and president of Team Sharing Inc., a national organization of parents who have lost a child to substance use disorder, better known as SUD, through social networking, community activism, grief services, and advocacy. Team sharing provides support and friendship to grieving families while working to raise awareness of substance use disorder and its impact on our communities. Thank you for coming tonight, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, you have so many things we could talk about, but let's get right to the How is it that you're the founder of Team Sharing? How did that all come about? So I lost my son, Corey. Uh, February 24th, 2011. Uh, I was living in Massachusetts. I mean, I was living in Florida at the time. He was in Massachusetts. We had just moved down to Florida. Um, Corey was, I thought Corey was dappling in, um, in, in drugs, just doing his teenage stuff. I didn't know anything about substance use disorder. I didn't know anything about the disease of addiction. So I would basically tell Corey, hey, um, you know, grow up, you're 23 years old, you have a child, you don't have a job, you're on food stamps. And I, I just didn't understand what was going on. So February 24th, Corey was supposed to fly down to Florida um, on February 25th um, to visit me because he was going through some trials and tribulations and um, uh, he didn't have a license, so I was calling him all day the day before, trying to make sure that he had a ride to the airport, and uh, he wasn't answering, and I just didn't understand why, because he always answered his phone. Um, long story short, I sent my oldest son, who's a police officer, to call um, the police station where in the town Corey lived in to go do a wellness check, and they found him uh, overdose. And so while living in Florida, I grieved and I tell people I suffered in my grief alone for the next three years. Um, every day I woke up, I cried. Every night I went to bed, I cried. That's just basically all I did. I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't know anybody that had lost a child, let alone from the disease of addiction. So I just suffered alone. Um, I went to grief support groups for people that had lost their spouses. Um, that didn't work for me. And then I met, I moved back to Massachusetts and then I met some other moms that had just lost their children as well. And we connected and uh, there was actually seven of us and we went out for dinner one night we all kind of find, found each other on Facebook in, in a group where uh, there was people with, uh, that had support for their child that was in active addiction. 
Well, sadly, one by one, we were losing our children. <clears throat> so I met these moms at dinner and we all sat around the table and we talked and we laughed and we cried and we shared our stories. And, and I felt like that night changed my life. I felt like I was home. I belonged someplace. And so um, I went home, created a Facebook messenger group with just the seven of us. And we blew that up. That was the year 2015 when we went to the fed up rally and i in the in the messenger i said to to my friends my mom friends and i said hey there's a fed up rally down in washington dc who wants to get on a plane and just go and all seven of us did we shared rooms we just you know we just we just wanted to we just felt like home and so we wanted to go down and make a difference so we went to the fed up rally and while there we met other grieving parents. And so <clears throat> we came back and, and the messenger thing wasn't working anymore. So I started team sharing in Massachusetts, um, just a place for us to go to that um, we could share our child and not feel like we were voodoo and not scare anybody and just be able to, to talk about our child openly because, you know, at that point people think we should be moving on and, you know, after losing our child and we know that we don't ever move on. Um, we don't ever get over it, you know? And so, but one of the biggest complaints that these moms had, including myself, was that over time people forget our child's date of birth their birthday, they forget the date that they passed because they go to the funeral and then they move on. And so I said, if you join our group, I want your child's name, date of birth and date of death, because in here, we will never forget your child. So I created a spreadsheet for those moms. Well, today we have almost 900 members in Massachusetts alone. Um, that's a pretty healthy number. Now you, you keep saying moms do not have many dads in the group. We do have dads in the group. And, and so forgive me for that because, you know, it, it, the groups are for parents. Dads don't seem to want to come out as much as the moms do. So, so, you know, it is parents and that's what I really should be saying. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so it just, that caught on and um, people wanted to join from other states in Massachusetts. And, and the thing that was so special about Massachusetts was we could all meet. Massachusetts isn't that big. So we often will go out to dinner, we'll go out to the movies, we'll support each other, we'll go to advocacy events. We do a lot of things together and we found that our best friends are now our sisters and brothers in, in grief. And so when people from other states saw what was going on, they wanted to join Massachusetts, but it just, I knew that if they had joined, it just wouldn't be so personal anymore. So that's when I began opening up chapters in other states. So we have 25 state chapters. I and see those, in, those are on your website. Yes. I see all the different states that are listed there. Those are all. Um, and then I also notice you have one that says national. What does that mean? 
So the national group is while we were waiting for states, well, because we have admins that run each state. We have two admins. And uh, while we were waiting for admins, we needed a place to put all these people. So we opened up our national chapter. So we have close to 4,000 members in that national chapter. And from that national chapter, we will reach out every now and then and say, okay, we need to uh, get a chapter going in Utah. Is anybody interested? And, and it all depends on where they are in their grief, if somebody wants to take on that task or not. So, um, so right now we still have 25 more chapters um, to go, but that's okay. I mean, there's, there's no rush to get there. They're still able to be a part of team sharing in that national chapter. Uh, so what is the, what do most of the people do at teams? Let's go back to Massachusetts because it says it's registered in Marlboro. So how often do you have meetings uh, where you like grief meetings? Is that part of the part of it or is it more social things? It's more social things. <clears throat> Robin Houston Bean from the Sun Will Rise Foundation. She does all the grief support groups. Um, we, which is, which is wonderful because that wasn't something that, um, that would have been really, really hard for us to take on as well as be in charge of all these state chapters and, and whatnot. And, you know, we have to train the admins and whatever, but Robin does, um, she takes care of all the grief support groups. I became a nonprofit in 2017. And the reason I, I did that was because, um, again, when I opened team sharing, I had no idea that all of this was going to, to happen. That wasn't like my plan. It was just, I just wanted a place for us parents to go to that we could chat. Um, but I got a phone call one day from a hospital and um, they had heard of team sharing and they wanted to know, they had just, uh, some parents there had just lost their child and from an overdose. And they wanted to know if I knew of any resources that they could send them to to get help to bury their child because they didn't have the finances. And I remember just standing there holding the phone in my hand and tears started coming down my face because I, I was like, here we are supporting all these parents, but yet when they're newly bereaved, we can't do anything. There's nothing we can do to help. And I just felt because I just felt God say, it's time for you, you to become a nonprofit. And, and, and I'm like, no, I really don't want to get, I mean, I'm getting up there in age. I don't want, you know, God said, yes, you do. So long story short, uh, we became a nonprofit. And with that nonprofit, we do help pay for burials now. We do help pay for urns. We do help the children left behind. Massachusetts has a huge Christmas party every single year. We have about 50 children all together that have all lost their parent, sometimes too, and we give them gifts and we have Santa Claus and we have a Christmas tree and we have lunch. And um, so we do that with, with the funds that we, uh, we have coming in from the nonprofit. So we are able to, to now help people and give back. Yeah, I didn't understand that part. So where did you have that? Where do you have that party? Is it in the Marlboro it, area? It's at the main Lodge of Elks. Um, they give us the hall every year. Of course, the last two years we couldn't do it because of COVID. But last year, because of COVID, what we did was we had, you know, we already have the kids' names. We had two Santa Clauses that we secured. 
One went to the North Shore, one went to the South Shore, and we hand delivered the gifts to the kids at their homes. Wow, that's a, that's really something to do. That that's yep. takes a lot of organization. And there was a there sure a lot of happy kids with nice surprises. Yes, and they don't even know. I mean, you know, they're told that you know this is a gift from somebody that loved your mom or somebody that loved your dad, and they wanted you to have something special. And what we do is, you know, we the gift we ask the grandparents ahead of time, which are the parents that are in our group, you know, give us an idea of what they want at about a hundred dollar limit. And, um, you know, we've given them tablets, we've given them uh, hoverboards, we've, you know, things that maybe they couldn't normally buy. Um, and, you know, we, we fundraise to get the money, but we get the money and every single year it seems to work. And, we get the money and they get the gifts and everybody's happy. That's really something that we say, you know, the name of our show is Courage to Hope. And that certainly puts the, there's the courage and there's the hope, right? You, you do it all. Uh, that's really something. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that feels pretty good when you're doing that. And that's, you know, that's one of the things I always find is with grief, action is the best best medicine, getting Absolutely. stuff done, doing stuff Absolutely. with people. Yeah. So yeah. we have, we have parents that come into the group that are just newly bereaved. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, Tony, we do advocacy and, but I never force anything on anybody. You know, what I'll say is, okay, we have an action that's coming up. And if you want to be a part of it, this is what you need to know. You know, so, so, you know, like you said, everybody's at different stages and, and, um, of, of their grief and, and when they're ready to do it, uh, they jump right in. Um, sometimes there are people that have been three or four years out that are just like, you know, and we try to help them and encourage them because you're absolutely right. It's when, if you sit back and do nothing, you're just going to die. You're just going to die a very slow death. It's when we put things into action. And I am the first one that said, and I say it all the time, the strongest warriors that are out there are the ones that have lost a child. Oh, absolutely. Um, let's go back to the fact that not too many men are in the group. I, I did see on your website, Gary Carter was in the picture and he's somebody I know from something else. And uh, Gary is, uh, does a grief group for, men's, for men only. And I haven't been just discussing this completely on week after week that we have a real problem with so many men who have lost a child who are suffering internally and, and right now suicide from 52 to 60 with people who have lost a child is the number one suicide in the country. Do you have any solutions of how we can get these moms to bring their dad, to bring the dads along with them and get them more involved? Well, um, truthfully, things like um, in December, we have a cruise planned. It's called a yeah. Healing Light Cruise. And, um, and this is where we get a, lo a lot of moms and dads to come together. And that's, you know, when they meet doing things like that. When we do activities, um, I don't think most men don't like to sit around in a room and talk about their problems. Some do, some don't. I, I find that the dads that I have met through them, through the moms that I, I know, 
um, our best when we're out doing something active. You know, when we're out yeah. um, bowling or or at the movies or having just having dinner together. I mean, I've got, but they won't. They they do not want to confront their feelings in front of other men, and that's just I, I I'm not a man, but yeah, that's I, we. We've done a, the group, the out of what I've been involved in, they call it John Wayne syndrome. Men, men are supposed to be the protectors and the macho guys. And, and they're the ones that, you know, they're the fixers, they, the fixers are, and they didn't yeah. fix it. And the fixer, the problem right. didn't end well. So then the fixes, you know, so right. uh, tell us more about this cruise. I, I'd have been very interested in that, but I, I get seasick in a bathtub. So I, I can't even think <laughs> oh. of cruise. It's called the Healing Light Cruise. Um, Patricia uh, Amor, um, she's, she had lost a child and uh, her and her husband, Mark, they, they have a um, travel agency called Affordable Journeys. And what they do is um, they try to find trips for parents that have, you know, lost their child. Um, and they've offered team sharing to join them on this particular trip in December. It's December 4th to, through December 11th. It's in Florida. It's with the Oasis of the Seas. Um and, um, and it's just an opportunity for us all to get together. We also, you know, we have a conference room that we have. So um, we bring pictures of our children and we put them up, line them up in the, in the conference room. And uh, we have some speakers. So while we're at sea, we, we do all this stuff. Um, and it's really, it's, it's a, a time for fun, reflection. Uh, but it's also a, another place that we get to meet other parents from other states you know all across the country so this is our second one so we've already we've already done one and and it was very successful and um and i made some really close friends on that trip that are in team sharing so i did check the prices yesterday and i will say if anybody's listening that's interested you know, the in, inner cabin is like 380 and the out and one cabin with the balcony and so forth is around 500 or 600. I could tell you for seven days, you couldn't go out to eat for that amount of money. And you're going to have seven days of food. And, and the best part is you're going to be with other like-minded people. And I'm sure that it's a terrific, terrific idea, especially during December. <clears throat> I find from the grief groups that I've been involved with that Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's is the toughest time for most parents. And that's and exactly it, why we chose that. I can see that. And getting away and not having to look at Christmas lights everywhere you go and, and having the TV hammering you constantly to buy this or that for Christmas, you know. And right. I know that's the toughest time. All the memories come, come back. Yeah. It's really bad. And that's really great that you're doing that. Yeah, so in instead we put our, our toes in the sand and have a pina colada, you know, virgin pina colada for me. And, uh, you know, just just enjoy the weather and the company and not have to think about the things to come. Good. So now the um, 
I met you, I think it fed up, but um, but the other thing that I remember most about when I first heard of team sharing was we were going to rallies in front of Purdue Farmer and we would doubt it. We were at a Harvard and we were at the hearings at the courthouse in the Superior Courthouse in Boston with Maura Healy. Um, so that's, is that's the biggest part. One of the big things with team sharing is to get out and support to get this things so, going like that. Yep. So back in when Moore Healy back in 2018 announced her lawsuit against the Sacklers, um, I got a copy of that complaint because I, again, just like the, um, the, the becoming a nonprofit, I sat there and I listened to the parents all the time talk about how their child had surgery and was prescribed an opioid. And, you know, I heard all these stories, but we just support each other. So nothing, nothing became of it. But when I, when Maura Healy announced that, and I read the complaint, I was like, it was like a lightning bulb went off in my head. I'm like, oh my God, we have to do something. And so I went in team sharing and I said, you know what? We need to go march in front of Purdue Pharmaceuticals. And if anybody wants to do this, nobody has to do this, but please join me. So I created an event. Um, I asked Ryan Hampton because he's well known if he would help. And he said, absolutely. So he co-led it with me. Um, and I put it out on Facebook and I was beyond, beyond surprised that between four and 500 parents actually showed up with photos of their child walking in front of Purdue Pharmaceuticals. And so because of that, that kind of, that started the, the movement. Um, from there, you know, we went to take, uh, we went to Harvard University, take, take the name off the buildings. Um, you know, we went to Suffolk Superior Courthouse in support of Maura Healy as she was still doing her lawsuits against them. Um, because, you know, we, we learned about the Sacklers. We learned how our kids got addicted. We had no idea. We just, you know, the doctor prescribed something. We gave it to our kids to take. We had no idea. And so that's where it's let's give them Let's give the audience that's new to this show a little bit of background. Purdue Farmer is a pharmaceutical company that makes oxycodone and oxycontin and Dilaudid, Vicodin and Percocet, and they're located down in Stamford, Connecticut. And everybody's probably heard of the big lawsuit. And uh, Richard Sackler, who was the president of Purdue in 1995, wanted to introduce oxycodone. And he did it by bribing people, doing everything that he shouldn't have done and got away with it. He basically bought the FDA and he basically bought the Lord, bought the doctors, and he bought the hospitals, and he convinced them all that that um, that pain was should be the fifth management of, uh, of taking care of patients, and that the United States was doing a terrible job with pain management, and they needed to get this opioid. And they lied and said that it was less than one percent would get addicted, and we all know that it's much higher than that, and. And so one thing led to another, and by 1996, 97, the opioid epidemic was well on its way. 
And that's when we talk about Richard Sackler or the Sackler family, because it's a whole family. It's not just a few people in the family. It's the whole family that is the problem. Uh, his cousin, his son, the aunt, the uncles, everybody in the whole family is taking billions of dollars away. So they're, they're our enemy, kind of pretty much the way we, uh, the way I look at it. And um, so, and finally, we've, we've sued a lot of companies and I've been involved with a lot with that. Were you on the, the bankruptcy committee or the one yes, that Ryan? Yes, but I just want to go back to 2007 because back in 2007, they were fined $600 million. They pled guilty to misbranding. And so $34.5 million was, was fined to the, their three attorneys um, there's three top executives and they still continued to market Oxycontin afterwards. So back in my opinion, in 2007, it was a perfect opportunity for them to say, okay, you know what? We need to make this right. People are getting addicted. People are dying, but they didn't do that. They did just the opposite. They, they turbocharged they hired a consulting firm to turbocharge their product and sell, sell, sell. Let's get these people addicted, higher dosages. Um, and that's what they continued to do. So, yes. And so yeah, now we, I don't mind saying McKenzie was the company they hired. Exactly. And McKenzie actually taught Purdue how to deal with deaths in local towns, how to deal with the, complaints coming from cities and, and so forth saying that, look at what you're doing to my area. They actually taught them to do it. And then Mackenzie had CBS on the board on, on there as their client as well. And they combined the two together so that CBS was getting kickbacks and rewards and everything from, and uh, I understand on the, on the uh, it's hard for people to believe because I know you go to, you go CBS was the company that took tobacco out of their store. At the same time they took tobacco out, they were selling the most opioids in the country mm -hmm. and they were getting rewarded by Purdue. And on the bankruptcy that just happened, the, the CBS was, had attorneys on this thing looking for more than a billion dollars in kickback money that they were supposed to get for promotions and so forth. And they actually thought they were entitled to that much money. And that Ryan was discussing that last week. I was just overwhelmed. I can't, you know, it's hard to believe, mm -hmm. you know, but they would do that. And McKenzie recently just paid a $500 million fine somewhere I've heard of, and just to cover themselves up to get, kind of get it over with. Um, but Purdue, on the other hand, were you on the committee of the unsecured creditors? I was, I know Ryan was, but were you on that too? And I still am. I'm okay. still on the committee. Please. So, what, what, what took place was with, you know, Ryan and I were doing so much advocacy together and, and involved with the parents and, and going to all these different places, like I had uh, mentioned earlier. Um, Ryan got in touch with this attorney out in California about doing a, um, a lawsuit. And um, so she, and Andrew, so she, um, 
She was going to do that, but in the, in the process, Purdue filed bankruptcy. So she brought a bunch of us parents together and kind of interviewed us. And she chose us to go to New York. And she said, listen, this is your opportunity to go to try to get on the unsecured creditors committee because you'll have a voice. And so we went to New York, September 26, 2019, to apply for this position along with hundreds of companies, hundreds of other people. And we were interviewed by the United States trustees office. And at the end of the day at five o'clock, they were to come down and announce who was going to be on the committee. Uh, they, CVS was one. Um, there were, you know, six companies, I believe. No, five companies and four, four victims, actually, uh, personal injury victims. And so anyways, um, Ryan got picked and I think he was like number seven. Uh, then they called number eight and then they called number nine and I was number nine. And I, I was so excited because like Ryan, like he shares, we were so excited because now we've got a seat at the table. Now we can go in and bring the Sacklers down. Now we're going to go in and make a difference. We are going to, our voices are going to be heard. Well, it didn't work that way. Um, what we had hoped to happen and what really ended up happening were to two totally different things. Um, because of the bankruptcy and the plan in, you know, not a perfect plan, but at the end of the day, it was, okay, the Sacklers aren't going to end up in jail. What's the next best thing we can do? And that would be to get as much money out of them as possible, to drain them as much as we possibly could so that we can take that money, which is all supposed to be used towards abatement and help start saving lives now. And so that's, that's what they're at. And uh, it's been two and a half years. They didn't expect it to go so long, but there's, it's still an appeal. So anything could still happen, anything. But well, our, so voices weren't, our voices weren't as loud as we, we had hoped. You, you sat on that for two and a half years and you're still I on am, it. I am so still on that. How much time have you spent on this? Hundreds of thousands of hours. I can't even tell I've sat through, I've sat through, Every deposition that, that there was with the Sacklers, I was face-to-face -face with Richard Sackler for eight hours on Zoom. Um, How did that make you feel? Horrible. Absolutely horrible. Horrible. Is he the so, most insensitive person you've ever seen? In and life? the most insensitive person. So I, we're probably going to go up to, if we have time, to talk about the 26 of us that confronted the Sacklers just recently. Okay. And how Rick how Richard Sackler was supposed to be on the Zoom for us 26 people to talk to, about the Sacklers, or talk to the Sacklers. Well, Richard, well, he was on Zoom, but he wasn't seen. Nobody could see his face. And people were disappointed. And I said, it was actually a blessing because you had 26 people that were telling the Sacklers off, you killed my child, telling them just how they felt, in front of a judge, the judge, this was all approved. And you couldn't see Richard Sackler to tell him what a piece of crap you are. 
But I said it was really a blessing, and I'll tell you why. Because I sat through the depositions, right? I saw him face to face. If he, if I was going to share my loss, he would not think twice because because I, I even said the man has no soul. He he really doesn't. He doesn't have a soul. He would have probably taken a bite of a ham sandwich and not blinked an eye as I'm crying my heart out, which these moms did and dads and shared their stories, he wouldn't have cared. And that would have made those people feel worse than the, having that opportunity to tell them how they feel. He had to sit and listen. So he heard it. He sat with an attorney. He, he heard it. But I'm glad the people didn't get to see his expressions because he has no soul. He really doesn't have a soul. I think it runs in the family because I saw Kathy Sackler was was interviewed by Mrs. Harrington in, in that committee meeting they had a year ago, December. And she asked her, she said, knowing what you know now and knowing that over 500,000 people have died, would you have done anything differently? And she sat there for 30 seconds and she said, no, absolutely not. And yeah, she said, I don't think I would have done anything different than... I can't think of anything I would have done different. Yeah. 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 You know, then, it's, then, the, then her nephew, which was Richard's son, David Sackler said, said, um, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, because after 2007, what we have to tell people is the Sacklers now decided that they were going to start draining Purdue Farmer of all their assets. And they took out approximately $13 billion worth of cash out of the company over the next that- three or four years. And that was after the 2007 lawsuit. Right. That's why they they knew that they were still doing wrong. So then it was like, okay, now we got to take this money and we got to ship it overseas and we got to get it out as fast as possible because we don't know when the next lawsuit's going to happen. That's right. So they didn't care about anybody who died. And David Sackler sat there and was complaining that he had to pay taxes on that 13 billion complaining. Like, like, oh, how can I survive with so little, with so little money? I had to pay taxes on it, you know. And by now, that's probably twenty billion in investments, based on the way the stock market's gone up over the past few years. But anyway, the whole family is just absolutely into themselves and the rest of the world. We're just, we're just, you know, collateral damage. Right. And right. so during my during my speech to them, Tony, I had to ask them. Really, like, how much money is enough? And I said, really, how much is enough? Like, I mean, you get billions of dollars, people are dying, but you want more. There's greed, there's more. Like, when, when is enough enough? But it's never enough. It was never enough. You know, and, um, and, and obviously that money covered up... Um, you know, what was going on in the world. They didn't have to know about it because they have enough money to shield that. That's right. And they have all the lawyers and they shield themselves from the whole thing. And, yep. and it's just, uh, so so that you say that it's still under appeal. So does that mean that the parents are still not going to get any money for quite some time yet? If they even get any money. So, it, so it's going to the second circuit on April 29th and they, the second circuit's going to decide whether 
the third party non-consensual releases are legal or not. So that if they say no, then this whole thing is over and done with. Um, so the whole plan that everybody's agreed to, including every state, um, will be will be gone. Um, the victims, because I'm sure Ryan told you, they're only getting $750 million. Maybe that sounds like a, a lot of money, but there's 136,000 cases. Yeah. You know, you do the and, math, it doesn't come out right. Right. So, but for me, I was okay with that as far as my portion, because if they take the thing that I really did like about the plan, the best part I liked about the plan for the bankruptcy was that every single penny going into this, this um, opioid abatement fund has to be used for abatement, has to be used for this opioid crisis. And in other words, like a hospital that's going to get some money cannot buy an x-ray machine. It has to be used towards, towards this crisis. So that's, that to me was the best thing. Um, the states can't take the money and put it in their coffer fund. They, it goes right into a direct fund and, and there's a process of the money that has to be spent in where. And it's, it's, that part is really good. And I would forfeit my money to, to make sure that that money went to somebody that could save a life. I, I agree with you. But, you know, I told you earlier, I recently had back surgery like three or four weeks ago. Every single time a different group of nurses came in on every shift, they were still pushing an opioid on me. Said, oh, you got to make sure you don't get the pain doesn't come through and blah, this stuff, you know. And I, they, I aggravated them by just saying, no, all I want is Tylenol. They couldn't, they couldn't, get, it was like, so the biggest thing they could use this money for in hospitals is to re-educate the nurses, especially, because they're the ones who are going right to the patients. And uh, even when I had the discussion with my surgeon, he totally understood my point of view. And it happened to be at Tufts where I had spoken with another individual, Irina, and, and they, she convinced them to take the sign down. She was amazing that day. She convinced them to take the sign down and like four weeks, five weeks later after we met with the president of Tufts, the sign came down and I know it was her talking to all the board of directors. It was an amazing mm -hmm. day, you know, and. Mm -hmm. And still the hospital that took the sign down still doesn't get the message. You know, it's like, right. and, and I'm sure it's that way everywhere in the country. And it's, right. you know. So it's, it's the education, but we don't stop talking. Right, Tony? We just right. don't stop talking. We make our voices heard. We do things like that, like, like Irina just did. That made a big difference. And we just, you know, we just keep talking. Absolutely. So now, speaking of that, yesterday you were at a press conference, mm -hmm. and tell us the good news about that. I think it's good news. It's great news. news. It's really okay. great news. So Attorney General Maura Healy and her team, she's got a wonderful team, secured $525 million from the three major distributors in Johnson & Johnson. So I believe it was Amerisource Burger, Cardinal, and... Um, McKesson. McKesson, thank you. It was yeah. those three plus Johnson and Johnson. So they got $525 million. Actually, it was $26 billion over the country. 
but Massachusetts got $525 million and they already have, um, they already have it, uh, money dedicated to each, each city or town. Um, and there was a formula on how they did it and whatnot. But um, yeah, that money is uh, coming in and it's, it can only be used towards abatement. So between them and Purdue, and they're still suing more people, you know, the money's coming in and we're gonna, we're gonna be able to start saving lives now instead of, you know, we've just been holding on and holding on and holding on while what, 275 people die every single day in this country. Yeah. Yeah, that's the number that, you know, and and now we have another issue because, uh, you know, the, the the Sacklers and Johnson and Johnson and all these prescriptions was kind of the, the spigot that started people getting addicted. And now we have an issue with pills that look like the Johnson and Johnson pill or the Purdue pill. And it's not, it's a fake coming in from Mexico and it's laced with fentanyl. So now we have this whole big fentanyl thing and and um, it's a lot of controversy. I was wondering how you feel about this. Um, I remember about before COVID, uh, you were going up to Montreal or Toronto to look at a safe injection site. Um, where do we stand? Where does team sharing stand at that? You know. Well, I can't speak for everyone, but I can tell you that I did. You know, I I was approached by. Um, a doctor here in Massachusetts who's very active in um, safe, injun- safe injection sites or facilities. And um, he asked me if, if I would support it. And I said, absolutely not. No, it's horrible just to have them go and use. No. My same reaction, by the way, when I first heard about it. <laughs> Everybody's reaction, I, I've learned. So when... I educated myself on it because he said, I'm really sorry you feel that way because it really, you know, is um, a a helpful tool in harm reduction. And so um, I did, I looked into it and it was like, wow. So these, these facilities, as we all know, is for a person to go to use drugs, um, in a clean environment, stigma-free. Um, they will use the drug in front of a healthcare professional. They will have the drug tested before they use it. And all this is in hopes of them wanting to go into recovery. So you're saving a life one more day. They're not getting that cardio disease from the heart. They're not getting um, those blisters all over their bodies. They're not shooting up with dirty needles dirty water, all of that stuff. Everything is clean and overseen by professionals. And there's even, um, after that's all done and they, they're in the waiting room and, and you know they have to sit there for a certain amount of time, they, there's, a, um, there's people there that will offer them to go into detox or into recovery. So there is people there to talk to them. So as far as my child goes, Corey, anyways, um, because Sean didn't use needles. Um, I would have driven him and so many other moms, once they've understood, it's it's amazing how many moms and dads want 
this to happen because I would have driven my son there had I known what this was all about. And, um, and I tell people, if I could have saved him one more day, I would have driven him there. So I think it's an awesome thing. I'd love to see it all through Massachusetts with that abatement money. And it, it can happen because I believe it's in the plan. Um, and so, um, you know, things, good things are going to happen. And I hope that that's one of them. I know the town of Somerville did a big push last year and a big piece on Channel 25 and on Fox. And they, they, were, they really were, the mayor and everybody else was, you know, because, it, as you know, the insurance to get somebody to detox is very expensive. And, and, and usually it's only for two weeks or, or a month at the most. If that's that. not long enough. No. Yeah, and families can't afford it uh, to pay it out of pocket. So if you have no way of getting into recovery, having some place where you can go that's safe makes perfect sense. Because yes. from what I read, only 10% of the people who have addiction issues ever get into recovery. So where's right. the other 90% going? They're going, they're locking the door at CVS. They're, they're in the back alley somewhere behind a bowling alley or something. And they're right. shooting up. And if they're by themselves in their own room, which is the most dangerous place to be, mm-hmm. they overdose and nobody's around to give them Narcan. And that's right. what happened during the pandemic. And then, you know, so uh, I think so it's I a think, great. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's a great uh, place to start. Great yeah. place to start. Team sharing. You have a, a, a place in Rhode Island. And I heard. I remembered that in Rhode Island, in Providence, they were going to open a place this at the beginning of this year. Did they ever do that? Are you aware? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they did. Um, I haven't heard anything about it, but I know New York's. New York City and the Bronx has two. They've opened that's, two. That's a yep. start again for the people who don't know. Canada's been doing it now for at least 10 years. And Vancouver was the first place. And Vancouver was having an average of five overdoses a day that they were picking up off the street. And they came up with the idea. And now they have two or three, maybe four locations spread out around Vancouver, the, the city, and one over in Victoria. And so far, they have we totally reduced the overdoses on the street. And second of all, no one's ever died in one of these facilities. And then they put some in- Or overdosed. Or overdosed, right. Because the most dangerous thing people need to know right now is that one pill can kill. Because if that pill that somebody gets is laced with fentanyl, and of course the drug dealer who's lacing it with fentanyl has not a pharmacist. So they have no idea how much to put in and how much not. And you can die. I mean, Ed, Ed, Ed Bish's son died from one pill. And he makes a point of that because he was, some was at a party and somebody offered him a pill and he had alcohol with it or something and he died, you know, in his sleep. And, and that's, you know, wasn't intended by any man. That's another question I want, before we run out of time, I want to bring up is the, there's a push in half of the country to stop calling it an overdose and calling it a poisoning. And because if you read in the in in the in the cycle, I mean in the dictionary, an overdose is something where people take too many sleeping pills, and and it's a choice, not a not a you know, it's not a thing that's that not they're deciding to do it. And, uh, and there's a big misconception that overdose it means that you're taking more than you should. But as we know, especially in the dope sick show, that we we learned that. 
you can take this oxycontin as prescribed and still and still die. Right. You know, because they kept doubling you. They were saying they were doing giving you 80 milligrams. And if you thought you were, they called it quasi addiction. And you could go, oh, you need to double it, go to 160 milligrams, you know, and it's like, and that'll take care of that feeling that you think you're getting addicted, you know, because you're just not having, you're not taking enough. Um, How do you feel about the word overdose when it comes to, do you think it should be like fentanyl poisoning as opposed to our opioid poisoning? Have you ever given that any thought? Well, I have because... I've seen people say, describe overdose as a choice. And that really, really irks me as though they chose to overdose and they, nobody chooses to overdose. So I don't, that I don't like. Um, Fentanyl. So what, I mean, what's the description of an overdose? An overdose is when you, your body shuts down, you stop breathing and you've had too much, too much of something in your body. And so you do overdose with fentanyl. That's poison. Heroin's poison. Um, the CDC calls it poison, by the way. Yeah. And it is. I mean, we know it's poison. Where it's coming from, you know, whatever. But I was recently in a, at, at a jail talking to some inmates and they, they were talking about fentanyl and they said, you know, we sold fentanyl because it's what people wanted. They wanted that bigger high. You know, they would go after the product with the fentanyl in it. Not everybody. I'm just saying some, if a, if a drug dealer has fentanyl, that's where the people are going to go to. It's, it's, to me, it's the parents that say, not my child. My child wouldn't have done that. You know, so you've got you've got that, but you've also got people are taking pills that they don't know what's in them, you know, that don't know that are being murdered. I guess that you know is what they're calling it. So right. it it it's you know there's a there's a fine line because you know a lot of our children dealt drugs, like let's say before fentanyl, you know, to fix their own habit you know, to supply their own habit. They didn't want to kill anybody. They didn't mean to kill anybody. Who knows if they did? We, don't, I mean, we don't, we don't know. So it's, you know, it, it, it's a tough, it's a tough line to draw there. You know, um, for team sharing, I don't want to be angry. I don't, I don't, we're a support group. You know, somebody had asked me if they could post something about, you know, uh, genocide, uh, in the group. And the last thing you want to do for grieving parents is remind them how their child died and get them fired up and mad and angry and hurt and crying. That's not what we do. So I don't allow things like that in our group. If you want to post, if somebody wants to post that they're having a 5k, you know, um, or you know, they're going to the movies or there's, there's an awareness event or there's an advocacy event, please post it. That's, you know, that's what we do. But the last thing I want to do in, in, in team sharing is get people hurt, angry. Um, you know, there's plenty of groups out there that they can join to do that. 
and and that's okay, but that's not what yeah. we do. Okay, yeah, I was going to say that. Um, I just was thinking we had this rock and roll night last Friday night with Louise Griffin that, you know, to raise money for Luke's cause there. That, that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Things like where people are giving all their money away that they're raising to go towards a good cause for, I think she supports halfway houses or something. Oh, she, Louise is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We're on the same page with her. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 No, no. There's, there's um, groups out there that are just, you know, shoot your local drug dealer. Let's, let's just be angry and, and, um, and, and they get people all fired up and they want to, you know, go rally in this and that. And that's good. That's, that's what they want to do. But that's what I'm saying is that's not what we do. No, no. Louise is uh, Robin Houston Bean. She's, she's amazing. There are so many amazing nonprofits out there. Michelle McDonald Dunn um, that are just doing fabulous work. Right. So uh, speaking of the people who are doing fabulous work, um, which I believe you are doing unbelievable work. Do you have a regular job or is this your full-time? This is my full-time job, 24-7. That's, I'm saying because it'd be impossible for you to be doing other things, you know. So Well, I mean, the other things is I'm on, you know, the committee for. Oh, the well, that's, committee. that's another whole, you know, thing. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I do what I can the best I can. And, and I'm fortunate that, you know, I have a, a great board of directors and, um, and a great team of admins that are helping run all the states. Yeah, that's terrific. Now let's talk about a phone call you got the other day from, um, Ashley, um, regarding a film that's going to be start filming in New England and Massachusetts in particular coming up in, uh, in late April uh, with Jim Wahlberg is going to direct this film. Um, how much do you know about it and what is it called? Um, I, I don't know if we're supposed to share this. To, no, to we are. I, I talked to Ashley. It's okay. All right. Yeah. So the movie is going to be called Out of the Ashes. And um, I, I saw a little bit of the, the forward of it, and it's absolutely beautiful. So, you know, back in 2015, um, when Jim Wahlberg and the Mark Wahlberg Youth Foundation did the movie If Only, at the end of that movie, there were parents holding photos of their children. And what Jim has um, planned or what he has in mind was, he wanted to take some of those people that were in the movie at the end, holding those photos that have since turned their pain into a purpose. And um, so I know you were one of the ones he, he wanted um, to, to interview. So, so really appropriately named out of the ashes. I mean, there we were, we were broken and, and, um, you know, and so from 2015 to where we are today and what we've done with our pain and our grief, you know, he wants to capture that. Yeah, I think that's a terrific idea. And, and there's actually several, you could do that on several different individuals, you know, this, that I know about, like, like Louise or like David Wendell or, you know, you could keep going well, on, you know. Oh, there's a million people that he could, he could grab, but what he's trying to focus on is the ones that were in If Only at the beginning. Right. Yeah. I and was that in would be, 
you were and Louise Griffin and myself, and there were there are a few others that he's planning on on interviewing. So um, I think I think it's going to be a great project. Yeah, if anybody out there hasn't seen If Only, um, you should try to do that. Uh, Jim, Jim Wahlberg has done uh, three or four movies, and I've since become involved with this company. And so the last film we did was um, What About the Kids? And that's about the grandparents raising the kids. And if you haven't seen that, it's called whataboutthekidsfilm.com. And that's all you have to do is put that in, and you can watch the entire movie on YouTube. Uh, it's a great film. If you put it in correctly, what about the kids film? You'll see a young girl who's eight or nine years old who's going to become a sensational actress if she wants to go that route in her adult life. She was she was just she was good. Yeah, she was she's terrific, and um, so that's going to be right out there. And you but, had a piece in that too. Oh yeah. <laughs> ironic i was being replaced by a man who was younger than me oh you know? boy yeah yeah in real in the real world you know ah. and so then they cut a little bit of it out but that's okay that was that's what they do in films that's so, right yep so um cheryl i want to really thank you for sharing your time and and um all of what you do is just so amazing and um, i'm sure when you when you get to where we go after we die, you're going to be, you're going to have a front row seat. So. Well, I, I hope I'm with my boys. That's for sure. That's, that's, the, yeah. that's what I'm looking forward to. Um, Absolutely. You know, like every parent, when we're not afraid to die anymore, because it's one day closer to being with our kids. Yes, that's correct. So I really want to thank you. And those of you who've been listening to the courage to hope, this has been Cheryl Jewiff, the president and founder of Team Sharing, Inc. And if you do have a loss of substance use disorder uh, of your child, just go to the Team Sharing, Inc. website. And you can go to the WMEXBoston.com website. And all you do is put in our partners. And we have the Team Sharing link right on our website. And I thank you very much. Thank you.